Today's sermon passage is Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Our Father and our God, we recognize this morning that indeed you are the one true God. We recognize that our our life and our being is is from you. We recognize that everything that exists, exists because you spoke it into existence, because you sustain and because you give life. Lord, we recognize that not only are you the creator, but that you are powerful and that you are moving all of history um, toward an end of your glory being fully revealed and exalted for all of eternity. Lord, we believe that not only are you um, sovereign and purposeful, but we believe that you are powerful and able to accomplish all things. Lord, we also celebrate the wonderful gift it is that you welcome us into your kingdom and into your family and into your work and into what you are doing. We recognize what a blessing it is that your kindness and your mercy and your grace are set upon your people. And we recognize that it is a gift that we are your children. Lord, this day we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, and that he reigns over all things now as your son and your Messiah and the one through whom all things move. 
Now, Father, we pray that you would change us. We pray not just in word that you would change us, but that you would recaptivate us with your glory. That you would captivate us again with your love and your mercy and your compassion. So much so that we are filled with love, filled with worship, filled with wonder, filled with compassion, filled with mercy and honoring you in all that we do. Lord, we need your help and we need a renewed vision of you. So God, would you speak to your people through your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 1. Um, here at Redeemer, we're working our way through uh, the book of Exodus. We started last week. Uh, our series is entitled, Our God Saves. And t- today's sermon is entitled, A New Egypt. And I chose that title because I want to prove to you that new is not always better. Because the reality is that Exodus 1, 8 through 22 does picture a new Egypt under a new king, and this was a horrible turn of events for the people of Israel and ultimately would prove to be a horrible turn of events for Egypt as well. Let's remember that the book of Exodus is real and true. And let's remember that the, the people in these narratives are real people. And what happened to them really happened in space and time. And yes, there are great spiritual truths for us to learn from them, but these are real people walking through real space and time. Ultimately, what happens in these verses that we're looking at today is the narrative of Exodus is set up for where it's going. Um, God's people are in Egypt by God's hand, and the king of Egypt is against the people of Israel. But in being against the people of Israel, he's not really against them, but he's against their God. And what plays out in this narrative is not so much about a king making policy against people as it is a deity who wanted to be worshipped making policy against the people of the one true God. And this is ultimately about whose God is real. This is ultimately about whose God is powerful. This is ultimately about whose God is trustworthy. Which God can faithfully accomplish His word. That's what's playing out in the book of Exodus. And that's what's being set up for us in this story. So ultimately, the book of Exodus is about God The Father who created all things. The Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Showing himself to be the one true God who saves. The one true God who is over all things. And the one true God who can be trusted to be faithful to his word all the way to the end. That's where Exodus is taking us. And that's what this story sets up for us. So, if you want to take notes today. First point is New King. Verse 8 begins this way. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now that's one of those simple things that we could gloss over. But let's not gloss it over. What do you say? Um, So last week we talked about Joseph. And so if if that's a new story for you, you can read the 
the last really 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, or you could go listen to last week's sermon. But Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was also called Israel. And that's where the Bible starts to get confusing for people that are new to the Bible. Everybody's always getting renamed, right? And so the same person's got all these different names, and things just can just get confusing. But, but Jacob and Israel are the same person. And Joseph was one of his sons. And his very kind, loving brothers sold him into slavery, faked his death, sent him to Egypt. But God raised Joseph up. And Joseph went from prison to vice president. He went from prison to being the number two kind of leader in the nation of Egypt, executing great authority over the land and over the people under the command of a king or a pharaoh. So the people, the family of Joseph, they moved to Egypt seeking after food, seeking after provision and famine, and they met their brother who is now powerful, who welcomed them, loved them, fed them, gave them a land, gave them a place, and gave them blessing in Egypt. So much so that chapter 1 verse 7 says, the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Egypt in the beginning was a good and blessed place in a good and blessed time for the people of Israel. But the passage says something fundamentally has changed. A new king has arisen. Now let's, let's connect the dots there. Egypt was a blessing for Israel because Joseph decreed it to be so. But Joseph was only able to decree it to be so because the king slash Pharaoh gave him authority to do so. Okay, so we see our connection. Egypt is a blessing to the people of Israel because Joseph decreed it to be so. But Joseph could only decree it to be so because the, the, the king slash Pharaoh gave Joseph the authority to say that. Okay, so when it says... Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That doesn't mean they weren't buddies. What it means is he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't care about Joseph's word. He doesn't care about Joseph's promises. He doesn't care about Joseph's blessing. And he doesn't care about Joseph's family. So instead of the people of Israel kind of under God's providential timing being blessed in Egypt, they are now immigrants who are expanding, and who are a threat. Because the king didn't know Joseph and didn't enforce the decree of Joseph. So under this new king, things are going to become radically different for Israel in Egypt. How does this unfold? Verse 9. And he, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So the king looks out at the people of Israel. He feels threatened by them and he feels scared. And then in verse 10, he does what counselors call catastrophizing. And what catastrophizing means is you look at a situation in life, you assume the worst and you push it all the way to its logical conclusions and then you assume that that's true, right? Okay? So this is what the king does. He goes, well, there's a bunch of them. So count the supposes, okay? Suppose they keep multiplying. Suppose there's a war. Suppose they join our enemy in the war. Suppose they fight against us in the war. 
And suppose that then they escape from the land. So he goes five supposes down the catastrophizing path to come to the therefore, we must eradicate all the Jews from Egypt. Very rational thinking, right? I don't do a lot of textual variant things here because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But at the end of verse 10, it says, an escape from the land. Which I guess that would be bad if, if the people you hate escape from you. But there's a textual variant that actually suggests that that should read, and claim the land. Claim the land. All of a sudden... It makes more sense why he's afraid of them. They're going to multiply. They're going to partner with our enemy. They're going to fight against us. And then they're going to join our enemy in claiming this land is their own. Either way, he decides that he needs to eradicate the problem. And so what is going to happen is a new posture that is against Israel. And it's going to unfold like this. He's going to afflict them. And then they're going to keep flourishing. He's going to oppress them. And they're going to keep flourishing. He's going to, verse 13, work them ruthlessly as slaves. Verse 14, cause them to live bitter and hard service. Verse 15, he subtly and quietly asks the midwives named Shipra and Pua, I'm from the south. You just got to cut me some slack on that, okay? But he's going to suddenly and quietly ask these midwives when they show up for, in the birthing room to steal the sons and kill them. Now, what I don't have time for this morning is a tangent about these two women. But they saw what the king was doing as evil, and they disobeyed. And God blessed them for it. There's a sermon we probably need to hear there, but we're not going to go there today. And then when that didn't work because these two women wouldn't kill the babies, he then imposed a law that said any Egyptian must take the sons of the Hebrews and throw them into the Nile River. So on the surface level reading of this, what we have is a king who feels threatened by God's people and is imposing as much harsh treatment as necessary to get rid of them. Alec Motier summarizes it this way. What he's going to do is he's going to take these things and he's going to put them in modern language. Listen carefully, okay? With the death of Joseph and a change of government, the good times in Egypt are over. The Egyptian authorities had become pathologically nervous about this increase in the immigrant population and determined first on a policy of persecution and then ethnic cleansing and genocide. And I don't think he's reading anything into the text. He's just bringing it to where we can understand it in our modern terms. So Israel is in a hard Horrible, evil situation because a new king is against them. And we, I, we could stop there and say now God's going to deliver his people, but we would really miss the depth of the, the 
Exodus narrative. So let's move to our second point, a new reality. Let's talk about this new reality. Because all I've given you is the public policy. But let's, let's, let's talk about what's going on underneath that. Number one, what is really unfolding here is a battle of the gods. What's really unfolding here is about glory. Which God is glorious and majestic and powerful and faithful and able. So we know on the side of the people of Israel was God the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who made promises to his people. The God who said that he was going to make them great and bless them and all the nations of the earth to be blessed through them. But what we might not know is, is in Egypt, the Pharaoh was claiming to be God. Pharaoh was worshipped as God. The king was worshipped as God. And so the king, the God, the worshipped one in Egypt is at trying to exact a persecution and a genocide on God's people that ultimately would be about him showing himself to be more powerful than the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, whether he knew that's what he was doing or not, I don't know. But that's ultimately what's playing out in this Exodus narrative. Not only that, let's go a little further. The Nile River was also worshipped. It was seen as the, the the, the representative of the God of, of provision, and, and not fertility as in human fertility, but as in like the, 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 the crops being prosperous. It was worshipped in that way. And so it might have been cleaner and tidier and more expedient to throw babies in the Nile, but most likely what he was asking Israelite babies to be is an offering to the Egyptian God of fertility. That's what's going on there. Appease our gods with your babies so he'll be better to us. This is a battle about which God is true, which God is real, which God is trustworthy, which God is just and merciful and right and faithful and able. That is what is playing out in this Exodus narrative. And that's what this is setting us up to see. So when we get to the ten plagues, that's all about the deities of Egypt. There's nothing abstract and random about that at all. Oh, you worship that? I'm greater than that. That's what's going on in this. If you think it's harsh to take the firstborn son, what just happened? Right? Okay, so I'll save that for later. But there's something else going on here that's really important for us. So there's this battle of glory going on, but the second thing that's going on in this reality is real human suffering and God cares about it. We theological people love to get up in the realm of abstract and forget that this stuff played out amongst real people in real space and real time. And so when it says... They were under heavy burdens and they were oppressed. That literally means that they were under heavy burdens and they were oppressed. When it said they were worked ruthlessly as slaves and lived bitter lives with hard service, that means they came home at the end of the day and they said, I don't know if I can do this anymore. 
And when it says they took babies and cast them into the Nile, that means mamas wept and said, my baby is dead. It was just right here and now he's in the river. And I can only imagine as a father, I've never been a mother. I am a father. Let me clarify that. I can only imagine wanting to pummel someone and throw them into the river for what they just did to my son. So listen, yes, there's something greater going on. And yes, there's this, this, this kind of cosmic who is the greater God. But this is not in the abstract. These are real people in real space and real time who were really suffering and really hurting and really broken and really weeping and really agonizing and really saying, how long, oh Lord, how, is, how long is this going to go on? And I think it's important that we remember that because that means that we're not the only generation of the people of God who've ever been right there. And so into this human agony, I think one of the results of the physical suffering and the emotional torment is is I can't help but wonder if the promises of God that he had already given became more sweet to them. Maybe I'm speculating, but here's, here's one of the last ones before they went to Egypt. Genesis 46. God was speaking directly to Jacob, Israel, the father of Joseph. He said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So I just can't help but wonder in the face of all that's going on here. And this is a bit of pastoral speculation, but I'm going to run with it in application anyway. I can't help but wonder if the promise that God would be with them down in Egypt was richer and sweeter and more joyful than the promise that he would get them out of Egypt. But either way, he promised both of them. So that means that God's with us in our torment and with us in our suffering and he's promised us an everlasting deliverance. But under this reality, there was great hardship and great suffering and God was with God's people. I'm sorry, I got worked up and have no idea what time it is. So I will, I'll do what I'm supposed to do here, okay? Therefore, Therefore, if I just go for like 20 more minutes now, can this count as the fourth service too? (laughs) In this new reality, there's really two, two things being set up. Number one, will God show himself to be the faithful, benevolent, one true God who is able to do all things? And just in case you're not liking today here at Redeemer and you don't plan to come back, the answer is yes. Exodus is a resounding yes to that question. The second question here is, is how will God respond to the suffering of his people? How will he respond to the agony and the torment and the cries of how long, O Lord, from his people? Chapter 2 at the end actually tells us that that is one of the motives that drives God forward. 
Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And knew there in the Bible is never cognitive. It's emotional. It's relational. It's, it's covenantal. It's a, it's a word for love. Adam knew Eve. So it's saying God was intimately connected to the suffering and he's entering into it to deliver his people. Guys, Exodus is setting us up for this great news that God's with us and he's for his people and he delivers his people and he's faithful and he can be trusted. So listen, if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, who the church is, how this all fits together, is there a place for you in all this? I just want to ask you this this series of questions. Do you believe that God is real? Do you believe that he can be known? Do you believe that he is for his people? Do you believe that his son Jesus is how you become his people? Wherever you are in that, I want to help you. I want to walk that journey with you. We want to help you move toward Christ and toward faith and toward trust. For those of you who are like, yes, I know God is real. Yes, I know he is faithful and good and true. Yes, I know that I can know him. Yes, I know this because of Christ that my sins are forgiven and I belong to him. Then the, the scripture says we are Christians and we are in Christ and we are the people of God and his spirit dwells within us. And we're going to celebrate that. And one of the ways we're going to celebrate that is in just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Team, worship team, wherever you are, come on up. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. This meal was given to us as a remembrance of our need for Christ, the gift of Christ, and our place in the kingdom of God because of Christ. And so we take the bread, and we take the cup, and we celebrate together. So here at Redeemer, we invite you, if you're a Christian, if you've professed faith in Jesus for salvation and made that known to a church, we invite you to take this bread and cup with us.